Hi, welcome to Building a Business That Lasts. My name is Jay Owen, and I'm your host. On a quest towards stories, tips, and ideas that will help you grow a business without being stressed out, worn out, and ready to quit. Each week, I'll interview other business owners who have successfully grown businesses of all types for many years. It's my hope that these conversations will help you build a business that lasts. So I'm super excited that our podcast is now on iTunes. If you haven't already, I would really appreciate your review of the show. Leaving a five-star rating along with a comment or two can be a really big help for the show's publicity and getting out there so that other people can enjoy this content too. So if you have a minute, it would be great if you would leave us a comment and just let us know what you found most valuable about the show in iTunes. Thank you so much. On this episode, I interview Richard Hardy. He's the president and senior project manager for the Hardy Group in St. Augustine, Florida. They have been around for decades, and Richard actually started in the construction business uh, himself as a laborer and worked his way up to running his own company. Over the years, he's kind of grown the team, increased the team, uh, and then kind of scaled back at times as well and really had to learn to pivot with the market, especially in an industry like construction, which changes a lot depending on the economy. So I think this conversation will be really helpful for those of you out there curious to to see how businesses kind of survive through ups and downturns in economic markets and climates. And uh, without further ado, here's that conversation with Richard. Hey, Richard, thanks for being here today. Hey, good to be here, Jay. So what I'd love to do with most of our podcasts is kind of start off with just a story from you of, you know, what what was your first job or first place where you got into business and realized, hey, I'm going to kind of uh, do my own thing. Where, where was that for you? Well, my first job in construction, I started off as a laborer, uh, working for a carpentry crew, doing framing, and worked with that crew for about six years uh, while I went to college at night, and uh, worked with another firm for a couple of years, and then after that, I decided I thought I knew enough to go in business, which I didn't really, but I did. So I started the business in 1982, so I've been in business successfully for about 35 years now. That is uh, awesome. Uh, Just recently, I got to interview Doug Wiles, who I know you know, because you helped uh, build their building or redo their building, at least in a very significant manner. And and he's kind of at the same level where he's been around at that, you know, 30 plus years. And that's one of the big motivations behind this podcast is to be able to interview other business owners who have lasted the test of time. Because, you know, at 35 years in business, you've seen everything from, I mean, you know, 1982, that's pre-internet days. You know, and here we are now where, you know, marketing and strategy and, and everything else has just changed so drastically from just how people did business, you know, 30 years ago. How have you kind of made that transition over the years and been able to stay in business all this time? Well, I think uh, trying to give good customer service is the, the key. And going back to the Internet, you're right, in 1982, there wasn't an Internet or computers that the common business could afford. Speaking of 1981, interest rates were at 18%. Mm. Uh, so if you went to mortgage your home, uh, buy a new home, you were paying 18% interest rates. So that was a recession in the housing industry, as you can imagine. I bought my first three computers. They were Xenix operating computers in 1985. Cost me $27,000. Wow. They had nine-inch green and white screens, but... That was the beginning of us looking at technology of how it could uh, help us in business. We had email between all three machines, not email outside of the office, but we had email so we could type to each other 
and send each other a message. And that was pretty cool. We thought that was pretty fascinating. So I, I think the success and longevity of our firm is customer service, looking ahead what might be in front of us, recessions or good times, and staying focused on our marketplace that, you know, whether it be big work or small work or remodeling work, stay focused on what the marketplace has to offer. We don't create the marketplace. Mm -hmm. The marketplace is created for us by the national and local economy, and we uh, have to ebb and flow through that. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. I know a lot of folks who maybe, or you see a lot of stories where people don't stay in business successfully because they kind of get stuck on this, well, this is how we've always done it, or "This this is just what we do, and they're not willing to kind of make those adjustments over time because it's interesting to me to think about like you starting as a you know laborer in the construction business and then making that transition into actually running your own business because that's kind of how I was too. I mean I worked for a company when I was a kid and got to pick up some basic trades around web design and graphic design all those kind of things and eventually felt like I can I can run my own thing or at least I think I could again same kind of thing <laughs> not very well for a long time and I still sometimes feel like I'm uh, not really quite having it figured out even after almost twenty years but what I'm curious about is that transition uh, there's a great book that I love called E Myth and he talks about people tend to be one of three things they tend to either be a technician somebody who's actually doing the physical work a manager somebody who's kind of operating things or the entrepreneur somebody that has kind of a vision vision and the visionary process behind moving things forward. So I'm curious for you how you made that transition over time from being the one who's actually out in the field doing the work to the one who's running the company and what that's looked like for you over the years. Well, I think I, uh, my education in high school and college were good foundation blocks. And after I started my business, I went back to school and got a master's degree in business I think I'm still all three of those people that you mentioned is that, yes, I'm the entrepreneur and have the vision of what we might should be doing a year from now, but I'm also hands-on as a small business person to meet with a customer and talk about layman-type yet technologically issues, whether it be commercial kitchens or whether it be, uh, you know, just the design of a new building, a dockmaster building or a Boys and Girls Club or Habitat for Humanity uh, developments or things of that nature. I think you've got to, when you run a small business, you've got to kind of have several hats on. And what I found is that I'm probably not the best manager. I've had as many as 50 employees, and I don't like that many employees. It's too much management for me. And I was not successful in finding a good human resource or a manager who could manage those people. So I scaled back down, you know, 20 years ago and said, you know, maybe eight or 10 or 12 people plus my subcontractors who I have more than a dozen who any given day we're working 40 or 50 people in the field on job sites. That's a good scale for me. I think uh, reading books of successful people like Lincoln, like uh, the founder of Publix. He wrote a book some 30 years ago. George Jenkins is his name. I purchased uh, Mr. Jenkins' book. I read it. I sent him a note with the book saying it was a great book. He signed it and sent it back to me. About took about a whole week in the whole transaction. Hmm. And so the founder of Publix was a hands-on guy. And I think you see that success today. Yeah, I think it's interesting 
Because what I always say in my business is that I can do everybody's job, but they all do their jobs better than I do. Like, for example, I can open up Photoshop and, and do some design work, but my designers are better at those particular things than I am. But at the same time, I think that there's a lot of value in being a business owner who actually has done those things, you know, and actually knows how to, whatever the trade may be, you know, just to, it's one thing to kind of have the book knowledge around, you know, how to do the things that it takes to build a build a house or build out a building or something else. But it's another to have actually physically been in there and done the work. And I've always found that to be helpful just from an insight perspective when I'm going in and reviewing somebody else's work to know that I know how to do it. And I think that's kind of the same for you. Like you know how to do a lot of those things because you've been in the business for so long and it gives you perspective in those particular areas. Jay, I think you're right. I, the uh, fellow I started working for built custom brick veneer homes in the uh, San Jose forest area of Jacksonville. And uh, the fellow he teamed me up with was a master carpenter. And uh, the benefit of working with that fellow is that we did just about everything. We dug the footers, we tied the steel, we framed the walls, we prepared the uh, brick ties for the mason, we set the windows, we set the doors, we installed the cabinets, we hung the drywall, we didn't finish it, we didn't set the tile, but we set it all up for every tradesman. So we were on the job of the house from beginning until the homeowner got keys. And that was, uh, I used some of those trades information that I learned. Just yesterday, I were getting ready to stucco a building in Marineland uh, for a dockmaster building. And even though my stucco mason has 30 years experience in the trade, I printed out six or seven pages of how-to techniques of installing synthetic stucco. I emailed him yesterday, not to tell him how to do it, but just to remind him that there's several key things you've got to do when you install stucco if you want it to go on the wall and stay on the wall permanently and be waterproof. And although we talked about this last week, I thought it would be worthwhile to just send him those tips of how to just so he could remind himself as well as remind his crew because he's got five other people that he works with. And we sometimes do uh, forensic testing for attorneys who are representing clients in lawsuits. Uh, The last job we did was a 10-story condominium, and about 40% of the stucco was coming off the building. All the doors and windows had to be removed and replaced. There were 177 windows, Hmm. 78 doors. And there were just things that the tradesmen did incorrectly in the original installation of why the building was leaking and the windows and doors failing. And so I think I used my early on trade skill and then later on my business management skill to try to assist my subcontractors, employees to let's get it done right. There's a saying in our business, measure twice, cut once. And that's true for things we do in the office. That's things probably true for your business, whether it be in Photoshop or whatever it may be. It's true when we write contracts. We usually write a contract or a subcontract and gel on it for a day before we send it to the customer. And it's kind of that measurement twice of that we get to think about overnight. And then the next day we go, okay, the terminology was just right, or we have a minor modification. So now let's modify and send it on out. Yeah, I think that's really wise for people to think through. Sometimes it's easy, especially on something like a proposal, 
I'm like, well, I just want to get it out as quickly as I can because I want the customer to see it quickly and get their signature on it and get started on the job, especially when when we've all been through seasons where work's lighter than others. You want to turn out those proposals as quickly as you can, and sometimes that's not the best advice because, I mean, I know for me, like I've had jobs, you know, for us, we'll do work that's ranging from, you know, a couple thousands of dollars to tens of thousands of dollars. Your, your scale is obviously much higher, but it's the same kind of perspective of what I'm about to talk about, and that is that, you know, sometimes it feels like it's really exciting to get a big job. You know, like for for us, a really big web development job is going to be in like a sixty to a hundred thousand dollar range, and that's really exciting. What's not exciting is having a seventy thousand dollar job that costs you seventy five thousand dollars. <laughs> you know, I understand. And, and I think, and I've had that happen. You know, on on big jobs before, and it's easier it's easier to quote the little jobs sometimes, but it's also easier for sometimes those to kind of get dr- dragged out in ways they shouldn't. But on the big ones, it's easy to want to push those proposals out and say, "Hey, let's get this thing signed." And then if you misquoted it up front, especially if it's a fixed price job with a fixed scope, yeah, you you can put yourself in some trouble. So that, that measure once. You know, or measure twice, cut once. It's definitely good advice. Thinking about um, quality specifically, it made me think about, I've got a um, buddy down the street who his whole family used to be in construction up north. And, and in our neighborhood, there's a lot of houses that are spec houses built by kind of mass builders. Some won't use any names, but, you know, uh, you know, your typical kind of, let's, let's get this thing up as quickly as we can. So they've had a lot of problems recently with their home. And it's just starting to get to that point where things are starting to fall apart where maybe if it had been done a different way at a higher quality level, they wouldn't be having leaks in their windows and they wouldn't be having, you know, all these different kind of things pop up. And so thinking about quality, when you're dealing with having to quote a job for somebody, I think this is hard in a lot of different industries. How do you deal with a customer who is looking at work that the prices can often be all over the place for what they think is the same work? How do you deal with that from a customer's perspective? Well, it's uh, actually, for me, it's hard to deal with because I oftentimes am doing repairs to people's homes or their buildings because they hired the low-price architect, low-price engineer, low-price contractor, and they were expecting they were going to get a high-quality job. I often tell customers when they ask me to quote a price, like, what does a house cost per square foot? I go, you know, they, they range just like cars do. You can go get a brand new car for $15,000 or you can get a brand new car for $300,000. Most people settle way less than $300,000, mm-hmm. but they also usually settle higher than $15,000 because they want the safety or luxury features that are in a $40,000 car. So when we're pricing a job as a prospect, we usually tell the customer, we're probably, if you're going to get three prices, we're probably the, the middle price or the high price. And if the internet tells you you can build a home for $100 a square foot, then I recommend you come have the internet build a home for you. <laughs> right. Uh, because the key, I think, for us is we have quality material, first off. We understand the material we're buying. And a good example is windows. There's a lot of windows in the industry that they meet the building code, but they don't meet the wind and rain that we have near the coast of Florida. They will leak, Hmm. and the building code doesn't solve that problem, but the homeowner or the other builder thinks it does, and it it doesn't. I think the second thing is having quality subcontractors who understand how to install and do their part of the job, and that they take care of their job, and if they see an issue with the other part of the job, they alert 
the Hardy Group so we can address that issue before it becomes a problem. And then I think the other part is being on the jobs. I'm on most of my jobs every day or every other day, and it's not a cursory get out of the truck, I look at the front door and leave. I walk the job and inspect it and discuss the parts of the job with the owner or the subcontractor or the material man who might be uh, on the job site. Hmm. So I'm really hands-on, and I I like being hands-on because I enjoy the process of seeing construction happen from the design, from the very beginning. You know, you do design of websites. We do design of buildings and houses. So we come in here with a uh, clean slate you know, a legal pad and start talking to the customer about what they're wanting. Mm -hmm. We're getting ready to do a a commercial building for an interior designer, and it's a design and build 5,000 or so square foot uh, meeting venue that will be also set up for weddings. Mm. And so her ideas, she's kind of all over the place about everything she wants in the building. But we have now focused that into a narrative proposal and said, we understand you want the following 28 things inside this building. If that be the case, sign the proposal, and then we'll get starting with our schematic drawing. So we actually are starting that job today. Awesome. So I think one of the big things for people, too, is when dealing with somebody like anything in the construction industry, and this is actually true for ours, too. I think there's a lot of parallels between the work we do and the construction industry, actually, because it's one of those industries where you just see story after story of, Somebody hired the cheap guy, and he's been in business for a year or two, and now he's gone, and he just disappeared. You know, he's moved to California or whatever, and and now what? Now they're stuck with whatever got half done or or done but not really done well, and they got to bring somebody else, and it ends up costing them way more to get it fixed. So I think just the fact that you've been in business for 35 years, I mean, is a testament to the value that somebody's getting because I know it's even in our industry where things are changing constantly on the technology front is there's not a whole lot of stuff on the internet when we're building something that we haven't already encountered from a problem standpoint. And I think, you know, in the construction business, there's all kinds of things that can come up, whether it's weather that's out of your control or, you know, um, something that, that changes, the customer wants to change something midstream on a job and you got to kind of adjust course and all these kind of things. And so one of the things I'm curious about is on the subcontractor side, we have a team internally, but then we also use contractors for particular specialties. So if there's a particular type of code or programming or server or something else, we'll bring in a specialist, which is kind of the same thing, to do a particular task, and then they're done. So it's kind of project-based. So when you're trying to find your subcontractors initially and evaluate whether or not they're doing a good enough job to kind of meet your standard for the Hardy Group, how do you make those determinations, and how are you... Over the years, how have you kind of improved that to know that you're working with the best people, especially when they're subcontractors? They got their own business that they're running, and and but they are still working for you, and you're working for the customer. Well, good question. In our database, we have more than a hundred subcontractors and more than a hundred material men, so we have more than two hundred vendors we deal with. Um, so we try to narrow it down on the type of job. So let's say it's a small commercial job, 5,000 square feet, a million dollars worth of commercial construction. I'll go through my database list and say the following vendors would do this type of work. And when we're uh, looking at putting our initial budget together uh, at the schematic design stage, we'll send those schematic drawings out to those vendors and say, put a budget together for us with this, 
and we have a list of things on the plans that we expect the uh, project's going to be drawn with the following attributes. And so each of those subcontractors and material men will put a budget together. And sometimes their budgets are very vague. They go, I'm not sure what we're going to do with this. And, but that helps us understand the job a little better because we know we don't know about certain things. And sometimes knowing what you don't know is more important than actually thinking you know something. And then it gets down to who are the best vendors and subcontractors to do the job. And that's somewhat vetted in that discussion stage of pricing. Our pricing in business by subcontractors is uh, capital-driven. You might get three prices from electricians who are qualified to do the job, and there might be a 50% difference in price. Mm. And once you vet out why there's 50% difference, it's either... One of the vendors is one of the subcontractors is really, really busy and can't touch the job anyway. So if he gets it, he wants to make sure he makes a lot of money. Or maybe it's the material. Maybe he's specced out uh, LED lighting and has more of it in quantity than we needed. And so we just have to go through that process with each of our subcontractors. And then some certain jobs, we just know that our window and door guy is the go-to window and door vendor to sell and install the product. Like when we did that 10-story condominium, we did get free window quotes and door quotes. But it was clear in reading the proposal with one of our vendors that he knew exactly what he needed to do, from removal to, reinst- to replacement uh, on a 10-story condominium. We couldn't make the wrong choice of uh, hoping to go with a low-bid wind-and-door guy. And there were certainly lower prices, but they just didn't have, one is the right product, and two is they didn't have the right crew size. Right. Speaking of that, if we're looking at a new subcontractor, which we do from time to time, we send out a uh, subcontractor questionnaire to them, and it's basically got six questions. And... The first five are, please send us names and contacts of five jobs you've completed with at least two of them previous five years. The other three can be current. And then send us your major material supplier with a name and contact so we can check out their credit history. Hmm. We then send those information out to the uh, their customers and the uh, supplier. If they meet our standard, then we'll... Uh, put them on our job list. If they don't, then we just don't use them at all. I think that's a, a good point for people in general as they're listening to the podcast is just having a process around some of those things that are standardized where you go, hey, when we're bringing on a new subcontractor, here's what we do. Like we have a particular questionnaire that we ask. We have particular responses that we're looking for. If they don't fit in these parameters, they don't make it on the list. Like that seems like on the surface, it seems pretty simple, but it's one of those things that you really have to establish over time because initially you might not know what questions need to be on that questionnaire. The questionnaire might be way too long and not get filled out completely, or it might be too short and you're not getting the information that you want. And over time you've figured out, these are things I really need to know to make a good decision. I think that's really important for people on the process side. Jay, you're right. You know, over the years we've developed certain processes so we don't hire a subcontractor who doesn't bring value to the project. Uh, As you said, some subcontractors come and go, some contractors come and go. They've been in business one or two or three years, and next thing you know, they're out of business. We had a uh, 
material man who who we did not use several years ago because we didn't he didn't meet the one is the test of time and two is he didn't ever fill out his questionnaire and send it back mm. even though he called on us two or three times to sell us a product we said until we get that questionnaire back we just can't do business with you he actually came in my office last week he is now a developer mm. and wanted to sell me a piece of property <laughs> and i really just had to laugh at him i said i you know from four or five years ago we couldn't do business and i couldn't do business with you now because the way you didn't react right. four or five years ago but he was peddling uh, some developments for real estate and had the great deal mm. in his mind and it just seemed too good to be true for me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, two last things I'd like to always kind of include at some point. The first one is going to be around kind of this whole idea of work-life balance, you know, and I think one of the things that's big to me is I think we all have different seasons in life. Some seasons where we're, that's all we do is work, and some seasons where we, where we work a little bit less. Some people love what they do, some people don't love what they do. So from your perspective, what is that like for you in life, and how's that changed over the years? Kind of how do you go take a break from work. What is it that you like to do, you know, for fun? Or maybe work is the fun. How do you find that quote-unquote balance in life? Well, I think over the years, uh, that work life, uh, family and faith have all been part of my life. And I think, uh, you know, especially in the last 10 years of working, my son is now 22 and just graduated from college. So... In the last five years, he's been real busy in school. Sure. And so the focus on the family has been with, I've got one son, and so Tracy and I have had to kind of readjust on how we deal with our family life, knowing that our son is going to be graduating soon and starting a new chapter in his life. But I think staying faith-based and family-based and then work as it goes and don't get too caught up in it. Back, you know, 30 years ago, 35 years ago, when I started the business, I felt like you couldn't do anything except work because you had to create the business. Mm -hmm. I still have to create the business. The the business doesn't come to us, even though we have a lot of referrals and we have a lot of customers. In our business, most customers only do something about once every five to seven years. Mm -hmm. Like we built the Herbie Wiles building. Uh, some 10 or 11 years ago. We maintained the building, but the Wiles agency is not getting ready to build a new building. Sure. Okay. And where some customers are going to build a new building or remodel a building later on. So I think staying focused with staying in touch with the customer, staying in touch with your family, staying in touch with your faith is the balance uh, by not letting get one too far out in front of the other. Yeah, that's kind of how I see it, too. I, I kind of almost don't even agree with the whole, like, balance idea because I, I always joke that it's more like a blender. Sometimes you need a little more spinach in it. Sometimes you need a little more sugar. And uh, and that's just how it is, you know. It, there's it's, it's just life's just all together. It might be work. It might be t- spending time with my wife. It might be spending time with the kids. But it's just a matter of kind of figuring out what that is for me in my particular season of life. And I think it's different for everybody. I don't think there's a right way to say 50% work, 50% everything else or 70% one. That's not, it's not really like that. It's just kind of all mixed together. At least to me, that's how it is. Yeah, I would agree with you. I think it is more like a blender, uh, you know, and, and I think for the recreational side is, uh, our family is a fishing family and a boating family. Uh, and we like to get out in nature and that kind of brings a calming effect 
of uh, what you know the water and the environment and the fish and the catch and release is just all part of who we are as a family. I also think that uh, you know my day in a construction world, our crews generally work from seven to three thirty, mm-hmm. but my customers generally work from about eight thirty to six. Yeah, and so that puts me in a position is oftentimes I might be at work at six or six thirty in the morning. And I might not end till 6.30 or 7 o'clock at night, but there might be something in the middle part of the day where I'm not working. Mm-hmm. There, I've had many a days where I might fish first thing in the morning and get to work at 10 or 11 and then work the rest of the day. Sure. Uh, so if the fishing's good and the uh, weather's right and the tides are right, I might be fishing early or late some days and then working part of the days versus working 12 hours a day. So there, it is a blender probably better than a balance yeah because you know it's just the way it is yeah so we'll wrap up with one final uh question and that's uh i always like to end with something around this nature of kind of personal growth now you've been in business 35 years so i feel like just a conversation with you is is personal growth enough for me and that's one of the great benefits of me being able to do this podcast is i get to talk to other folks who've been doing stuff a lot longer than me and been more successful than me and it's it's neat for me to get that insight so but for you at this point, you know, you, you've been in business 35 years. You have been comfortable enough over the years to know how to pivot and change and adjust to make it through all different kinds of climates. And how do you kind of handle your own personal growth, whether it's books or um, mentors or other relationships? Like, how, how do you kind of continue to grow personally so that you're able to keep leading well and, and keep your business moving forward? Well, I think it goes back to early education. Uh, I was never a person who wanted to read novel after novel. So I read chapter to chapter in different success type books, whether it be the George Jenkins type book or Abe Lincoln type book. But I also read some disaster books uh, and even looked at some things. Like it was clear to me 25 years ago, Kodak Film Company was going to go out of business because they just kept wanting to make copiers and printing film. Mm -hmm. And it was clear that was not going to be the future of people's cameras and photos. Uh, So looking and and reading snippets of publications and small chapters of different type of books, I do that all the time. I uh, oftentimes, I mean, will read, oh, eight or ten periodical publications every week. And some of it is about success stories and some about failure stories and some about fitness stories. And I just try to put all that in perspective of going, what does that mean for the future, you know, tomorrow for the Hardy group or the Hardy family or my employees or my subcontractors? You know, it's more clear for me today to see the maybe tradesmen working on a job very inefficiently. And I very well will pick up the phone and call their foreman or their boss mm-hmm. and say, just to let you know, your two crew guys out here are not being the most efficient. I would recommend you have a little more supervision. Or we sometimes on larger jobs, we'll put a, a camera uh, like a podcast sure. you know, on the job site, not just for the focus of momentum, but also for safety as well as sometimes we do work where the customer is remote. Uh, 
we did a job in North Carolina. The customer never came to the job site. It was a $10 million plus job. Customer saw the whole job hmm. on a video cam, paid his bills on time every month, never came to the job until <laughs> about a month after it was finished. And uh, so we find that type of visualization and sharing information with the customer is important. And I think that's part of our success is staying in front of or maybe even with the way the economy's going. Yeah, absolutely. I think that theme of just continual personal growth has been a big one for everybody. It's one of those things that I've found that regardless of how long somebody's been in business, the ones that have lasted the test of time are usually the ones that are willing to keep growing, keep learning, and they realize like there's always something else to know, always something else to learn. We are running out of time for today, but uh, I think I probably could uh, gather knowledge from you all day. I really appreciate your time and and your insight on this. It's been uh, helpful for me, and I hope it's helpful for everybody else who is taking a listen to the podcast. Um, so thanks for your time. Well, Jake, thanks for uh, asking to do this. I enjoyed talking with you. Appreciate it. One of the things that I think is really insightful on this interview with Richard is thinking about the idea of quality over time and taking the time to do things right the first time. A lot of times it's easy to get caught in kind of a price war, especially in something like construction. And the Hardy Group has really been focused over time with delivering the best possible product, even if it's not at the cheapest price. And I think that's something we could all learn from. So I uh, hope you all have inter- enjoyed this interview with Richard, uh, learning from decades of business experience and, and how he's kind of survived and grown through the years, I think is really helpful. At least it has been for me, and I hope it has been for you guys as well. Thanks for listening. I hope this episode has given you some ideas or inspiration that will help you grow your business. If you found it helpful and you know somebody else who might benefit from it as well, I would greatly appreciate it if you would take the time to share this with them, maybe on Facebook or Twitter or LinkedIn, or even shoot an email over to a friend uh, with a link to this podcast in it. And if you haven't already, make sure you sign up for our email list at buildingabusinessthatlasts.com.